There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello, you're very welcome to The Tonight Show. The economy will continue to grow strongly this year. The Economic and Social Research Institute has predicted, despite a rise in inflation and a fall in living standards. Ireland now tops the table along with other expensive European countries when it comes to everyday items. But does this really shock us anymore? And later, look at some of the other big news stories of the week. Do get in touch on Twitter with your questions and your comments. It's hashtag TonightVMTV. Before we get to all of that, European Union leaders have formally granted Ukraine candidate status to become a member of the bloc during their two-day summit in Brussels. The EU leaders also granted candidate status to Moldova in the last couple of hours, and they agreed to offer Georgia a European perspective, but said it must carry out a raft of steps before it can become a candidate. Well, a little earlier, I got a very brief update from political journalist in Brussels, Suzanne Lynch, about the decision. Look, this is a very symbolic moment. It's sending a very powerful message to Russia at a time that's still waging war on its neighbour. And six months ago, no one here in Brussels would have thought that the EU would be talking about admitting another member. Um, there was a lot of scepticism about enlargement and there was no appetite to expand the bloc. And now, since the invasion of Ukraine, that has changed. And tonight we have seen leaders unanimously agree to grant candidate status to Ukraine. And that was done in a really quick record time. However, as you point out there, this is only about granting candidate status. It is not about allowing Ukraine in anytime soon. So what they have said now is that Ukraine is going to have to meet certain conditions. We're not quite sure the specifics yet, but it's going to be things like rule of law, democracy standards, um, the economy, those kind of things. And typically it can take years. It could take up to 10 years um, for, for a country to actually reach those standards. You have some countries in the Western Balkans who've been way more than that, waiting to get in for different reasons to the EU. So look, a very powerful moment, a very powerful message, but we're still a long way from Ukraine actually joining the EU. My thanks to political journalist Suzanne Lynch, who joined me a little earlier. Now, here at home today, the Economic and Social Research Institute said that the economy will continue to grow strongly this year. In its latest quarterly economic bulletin, they warned that growth in the domestic economy will slow due to the impact of inflation. Well, for more on this now, I'm joined by Associate Professor of Political Economy at UCD, Aidan Regan, Minister of State, Niall Collins, People Before Profit TD, Gino Kenny, and News Talk presenter, Andrea Gilligan. And from London this evening, journalist, Ender uh, Brady, you're all very welcome to the programme. Uh, Aidan, I'm going to start with you. Uh, bring us through I suppose, some of the key takeaways from that uh, ESRI report today. 
Yeah, so I mean, it's very consistent with a lot of other research that's been published over the past few months that the economy is expected to grow. So things actually look quite healthy. Uh, but of course, the economy is a very broad concept. There are different economies. Uh, the export economy, the multinational economy, foreign direct investment looks to be very resilient. Uh, and in fact, they have up, they have increased their, their expectations for growth from exports, particularly from the multinational sector, computer services in particular. And they have moderated their expectations for growth in the domestic economy. Domestic economy, of course, is retail, wholesale, Construction, I think, is probably an important one to keep in mind, particularly for housing. So, yeah, so that's our GDP versus our GNP. Exactly. So the GDP figures. figure, the modified gross national income, the kind of statistical footprint of multinationals. But even when they account for that, they still basically say, yeah, the economy is healthy, expected to grow. Which means that ultimately the public finances are expected to be in surplus, so things look relatively healthy. The big question, of course, is inflation uh, and whether or not the increase in inflation is going to erode people's standards of living because their real wages are not likely to increase to match the increased prices and cost of living they face. Uh, and on that front, you know, a lot of it is, well, we just don't know. But we certainly know that inflation is going to go up by at least 7%, which, you know, relative to the UK is slightly on the lower end. Well, who knows? It varies a lot. Okay, so that was the negative side. But overall, you would say it was quite positive. The state of the economy is quite healthy. There's lots of European countries looking at our figures today thinking, given where we are at with inflation, given where, where, where we are at uh, with everything that's going on in the world, it's not a bad place to be. No, Ireland has a relatively successful growth engine through its export model, and that's the foreign direct investment model. Uh, and that is something that's qualitatively specific and unique. But of course, the reality is not everybody directly benefits from that growth model. The government directly benefits, citizens directly benefit through the taxes that are collected, of course, and that invest in public services. But ultimately, uh, I think uh, in general, you'd have to look at those figures from a government perspective and say, well, actually, things look quite healthy. Mm. And yet, Andrea... Um, there was also, I think, quite a startling um, stat in there. Irish people suffering the biggest drop in their standard of living since the crash, since 2008. Do you get that sense from people who call into your programme? Is there a sense of frustration or anger or, or discontent? Are people not feeling, you know, the growth that uh, Aidan was just talking about? I think we kind of have a, a, a... We're in a position at the minute, Kira, where I think the general public are of the assumption that there's a cohort of society that have a load of money. They've got savings, they're able to do with that what they like, whether that be from the holiday perspective, um, do things at their house. And yet, I spoke to a guy on the show only yesterday, um, his name was Michael, he was father of four kids, and he's telling me on the 22nd of June that he's now trying to plan for energy increases come September, October, November. So we're sitting here in a nice warm studio today on a really balmy you know, evening in, in mid-June in Dublin, and there's people out there genuinely really genuinely concerned about whether or not he's buying four extra jumpers come next October, November and kids are back at school. And I think there's a massive, massive disconnect. And all this week we've had these stories and, you know, we're talking, we've heard the whole shambles that went on between um, Leo Varadkar and Micheál Martin over, you know, w will there be additional measures brought in in terms of, a, you know, a, um, additional measures or emergency measures brought in in advance of budget 2023 with Micheál Martin has come out and said that's not going to happen. Leo Varadkar this week said it'll happen twice. And Micheál Martin's clarifying that only this morning in Brussels. And I think the public are listening to this and you're listening to this in a, in a week where we have the whole discussion around, or certainly the announcement of the news around the pay restoration for higher civil servants, pay talks, negotiations, you know, taking place. And when you jumble all of that into the one basket and you're sitting at home worrying about buying four jumpers for children going back to school, you know, in the last quarter of the year, I just think, like, we're at a stage, Kira, heading into the summer where there just needs to be a very clear a very clear, concise and a very consistent message 
coming from the coalition government. And, and it can't be this mismatch of what's been going on all week. Yeah, because what's the reality here, um, Gino, is that our earnings, mm. by and large, are not keeping up no. with inflation. No. That's where the drop in the standard of living. Yeah. Uh, and the ESRA report made that very clear today. Real incomes yeah, contracting by 4%. We have less money in our back pocket to do the same things that yeah, things are getting and more that's expensive. where the kind of econ, I mean I suppose the income deficit comes from and obviously there's a, an inflationary kind of crunch coming where people's um, income does not match um, in relation to prices um, and at the moment uh, prices are running at 7% and kind of earnings is less than 4% so something's got to give and you know it is given and something needs to be done very, very quickly because... And when you say something's got to give, how do you think that um, that disparity, I suppose, is going to play out? Well, I think one of the main things that will manifest into um, pay rises and, you know... And demands for pay rises. Pay rises, yeah, because obviously if, if inflation goes up, it's all relative to what you earn. And at the moment, that's out of sync. Um, and where people's pay, it doesn't match, um, you know, inflation then people will demand a pay rise. And, and if they don't get them? Well, if they don't get that, uh, you know, people will get on the street, as they done last Saturday. Um, and, you know, that's, that's how a lot of things happen in the throughout societies where, you know, things become uh, beyond kind of people's costs. Uh, they will kind of protest. Um, and we've seen that kind of different kind of jurisdictions and it will be no different here. I actually just want to go to um, Ender Brady because there's a huge amount of unrest in the UK uh, at the moment, uh, Ender Brady. There's strikes literally being announced or threatened right across uh, the economy. I'm sure a lot of our viewers will have become uh, familiar with a, a character who really has emerged as sort of the poster boy of the union movement in the UK, uh, Mick Lynch, who's uh, heading up the rail uh, union uh, at the moment. Um, tell me about sort of the storm clouds that are developing in the UK in terms of these strikes and these pay demands at the moment. Yeah, so today, Kira, was day two of the rail strike, and it's been structured in such a way that it's effectively wiped out the train schedule here all week. So there's a train strike Tuesday, today, Thursday, there's another one on Saturday. So the RMT union have effectively made it impossible to run a schedule. They just couldn't do it. So the whole of Scotland and Wales, barely a train has run on strike days. Devon and Cornwall, two counties down in the southwest, they've really struggled. You know, rural areas with very poor rail infrastructure anyway. What's behind all of this? The UK government has wanted to kind of kick the rail network into shape for quite some time. Coming out of the pandemic, they've obviously seen their opportunity. And the rail union led by Mick Lynch, who is London Irish and has spoken so eloquently and, and brilliantly, many have said this week, you know, they've made their point that they're not going to take no for an answer, that they will keep striking. However, Boris Johnson's government is digging in. He's not even in the country tonight. He's gone to Rwanda, would you believe? Um, By-election results incoming tomorrow in two different places, which may well spend a bit, spend the beginning of the end for Boris Johnson. Yeah. But in all honesty we're probably in for a few months of very, very difficult times here because Royal Mail staff, postal workers are looking at striking, you know, other industries affected as well. So yeah, I'm just a very, looking, very difficult few months. I was just looking and, uh, at teachers in the UK looking for 12%, bus drivers 7%, junior doctors threatening to go out, barristers even in London refusing to take on any more cases until uh, their wages uh, are increased. To, it sounds like a real summer of discontent there and a real problem for uh, Boris Johnson's government. 
Yeah, and he's adamant that increasing wages, this is what Boris Johnson's saying. He has come out and said that putting wages up is not the answer. But the average working person here is really, really struggling. Inflation this week has hit 9.1%. It's the highest it's been in the UK for 40 years. It's predicted to hit 11% by September, and wages simply aren't going up. And I mean, every corner of life here, people are being hammered. I went to a petrol station this morning, and it was £2.00 three pence sterling a litre. And I was watching people just out of curiosity. Nobody was filling the tank. Absolutely. And this was an affluent part of West London. Nobody was filling the tank. And then yesterday we had a story from Asda, the big supermarket retailer, saying that they're now noticing a trend where people are going to the tills and putting a limit of 30 pounds, telling the checkout staff, I can't go past 30 pounds. That's where we're at in the UK right now. I personally think we're staring into a recession. Um, Niall Collins, does what you're seeing in the UK concern you, given the way in which demands that might come here? Yeah, well, of course, it's a concern. It's a concern for the UK. But I think if you look at the experience that we've had in this country, social partnership has served us really, really well. Um, Aidan has outlined the, how strong our economy is. We've seen that from the ERSI report. Um, and a lot of that is down to the fact that we have social cohesion, and that we don't have our economy and our society being disrupted, um, thankfully, by the types of actions and strikes that you're seeing in the UK. So Although we did see, I suppose, those pay talks falter last week. I know they're going to resume, but yeah, so we don't have a guaranteed social cohesion at the moment. We don't, but I, I think it's fair to say, and we had a national economic dialogue this week, there were, there were discussions on the margins of that, and government is very clear that we want to come to an agreement here with the unions, and I think the unions want it also. We, we all, it's, look, it's common sense. Everybody can see that it's right for the country. We've rebounded so strongly since COVID, uh, and it's down to the fact that our, our workers, the industrial peace, our private sector is performing quite well. We have uh, in excess of two and a half million people at work at the moment. There's about 50,000 job vacancies around the country, right across the different sectors. We've seen our population increase. Um, yeah, on, and I was conscious. The census. So there's a, lot of, there's a lot of moving parts for our economy. And that's why government is anxious that we have uh, a new agreement with the unions uh, to put that to bed, to have that guaranteed, have that in your back pocket in terms of that, that doubt that, that, that may hang out there. And, and, and the Tanisha the did this week. It was really interesting to hear Leo Radker come out this week because he really talked up the economy, did he not? He said, you know, there was real financial firepower. You know, we'll soon be at almost full employment, about 4%. Our tax receipts are very robust. Like, it must have been music to the ears of any of those trade unionists looking to go in and negotiate a public uh, pay yeah, deal. We're, we're, going to, we're going to have a surplus of about £1.6 at the end of the year. So there's uh, more money on the table than what was on offer last week? Well, there, there's, one, there, there's money talks. available. And, and, you know, government has been clear in terms of, in, in advance of the budget. The budget will have a mix of, um, obviously, there'll be pay if there's, a, if there's agreement with the trade unions, there'll be taxation measures, and there'll be enhanced social welfare measures, targeted measures in particular. And, and I think that's how we obviously have to deal with the issues in, in relation to the inflationary issues that are putting people under pressure, particularly at the lower end and the middle end. And how far are the government willing to go? Well, look, I mean, the, the offer that has been made, as you know, is 5%. That has been rejected. There, there's already 2% in the pipeline from the building momentum agreement. Um, the 2% and the 5% was equating to 7% over the next two years. Obviously, if the parties are going to get back together, you know, logic would tell you that there's going to be uh, some bit of movement from both sides. Uh, Gino, how much? Well, it has to be north of 5%. 5% does not cut the mustard. And I think, you know... Where do you think it should be? A 10. A 10%. Uh, it has to be 10. 
you know, because as I said inflation is running at 7%. Is that a reasonable request, given well, the fact that well, inflation is running at what it is? Do you par, think... Par, par, part of the talks with the social partnerships, with, with the social partners, has outlined the fact that uh, the budget has to bring in targeted measures for people on lower and middle incomes. Um, so um, pay is just one part of the instrument yeah. which government has available to it. And, and through the budget, you'll have social welfare measures, you'll have taxation measures, which will be able to target um, right. more assistance to people okay. who need it more. Um, Aidan, we do often hear, you know, when we're talking about uh, wages being increased to try and keep up with inflation to ensure that people's uh, standard of living doesn't drop, that this could lead to this wage price spiral. Do you buy that? It depends, to be honest. I think it depends on the sector. But generally speaking, at this point in time, in the Irish-specific context, looking particularly at the domestic Irish economy, no, I don't. Uh, I think it's so you very... don't think giving people 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10%, whatever it is to try and match inflation, will actually just drive inflation further? Well, the, see, this is... One has to take a step back, I think, and look at this from the perspective of what's, what's just happened over the past two years. We've had this enormous shock right, to society, to the economy. We proactively shut down the economy. We've had pent-up savings. Two years, right, of this. Then things opened up. Then you had the war in Ukraine. You have all the energy shocks. You have it, it, there's so many things going on. And then, of course, understandably, the ECB has to step in and is going to increase interest rates. But in a context whereby inflation is going up by 7 or 8%, it's reasonable. It's very reasonable for workers to demand and expect a wage increase to match that, to ensure that their standard of living doesn't fall. The question for government is slightly different when it comes to the public finances. It's different, for example, in the UK with the rail, <coughs> the, the RMT or the RMT union. They're dealing with a private sector employer. Now, what's going on, of course, in the UK is that for 10 years, right, for 10 years, there has not been a real wage increase for anybody in the public sector. Ireland is not in that context. As Niall said, we've had actually quite good institutions, structures, negotiations, bargaining that has ensured, relatively speaking, people on the low to middle income have seen relative improvements. It's not exactly great. It's not boom time or anything. So I think Ireland is, is different to the UK in that sense. We have got a much better institutional setup for wage setting. But to answer your question directly, I don't know. Nobody knows if all of a sudden workers demand a 7% pay increase. Because it does not, if, if every single worker, two and a half million, seen that, would you see that transfer over the price increases? Probably yes. But one has to remember that the top 10% of the income distribution, the top 10% of those who earn very high wages, have seen extremely high wage increases over the past 5, 10, 15. Yeah, but then, and, who, and but then who doesn't get it? Exactly. So then the question is, like, within the, when the government you're talking basically about healthcare services, educational services, social care services, right? These are people who work in the public sector. Should th those who work in the public sector expect to get a wage increase that at least brings them close to inflation. The feeling I'm getting from the public sector unions and from government is actually yes to that question. But it seems to me that the bigger debate, and we'll probably move on to it later on, is the cost of living is not just about the wage you earn. It's about the cost of childcare. It's about the cost of housing. It's about the cost of accessing services. So the question then is, how do you bring down the cost of living? That's a fundamental question, which is part which is of the actually deal. Actually, what we're yeah. going to be speaking about in, in part two this evening. I'm just conscious, I suppose, uh, Andrea, when we talk about these, um, you know, price hikes or these very wage hikes, companies that have been under pressure for the last couple of years, smaller, private, small, indigenous Irish businesses, when they hear that, you know, there's a public sector pay rise uh, coming, you know, the big multinationals are paying out uh, pay rises, where does that leave them? What pressure does that put them under? massive issues in terms of trying to 
um, retain and attract staff, I think, in the first instance, particularly in certain sectors. Um, I thought it was interesting today, Kira, just actually on the, the ESRI and, and when you talk about, you know, the potential for there to be wage hikes down the line within, within uh, certain sectors, in particular th throughout the civil and the public service. Like, the, when you look at some of the surveys that are out and the bonkers.ie research, for instance, that's, that's out today, like, we're up there now with Denmark. We're up with pricey Denmark in terms of being about 40% higher of the cost of living. Like everything in this country now, from your broadband, your, your, your travel, your hotel stays, your hospitality, I know you're going to talk about that. Everything is so significantly higher here. And those kind of more lower paid jobs that we've had in society, we're constantly seeing signs everywhere. The length and breadth of Ireland for the past couple of weeks, people cannot get staff in now so many sectors. It's not just in certain, it's in so many different industries. Staff just cannot be got. And I think when you look at the potential for the higher salaries to come in in some of the likes of big multinationals in certain industries that you talk about, it actually puts even more pressure on those certain smaller, sectors yeah. at the moment and those small Irish businesses that they just they Yeah, so what's, what's the answer staff. for them, Gino? To the smaller companies? Well, look, obviously it's relative what they earn, profits and so forth. Um, but obviously the, 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 the negotiations at the moment around public pay is of, there's a, a huge sway of people that are in the public sector. Um, and... You know, but it's all relative to the cost of living. Yeah. And workers are seeing that, you know, what they earn is not matching what, you know, the, the everyday costs. And if once that goes out of sync here, then people will agitate. Yeah, and, we know, are and be very agitated. Talk about that in, in, uh, in the next part of the programme. I just want to go back to you. Uh, and uh, is, is the UK in a real uh, fix here because... I suppose really the government, because of breakfast, doesn't ne necessarily have the money to pay the increases that are being demanded off it. It's in a fix, isn't it? Look, yeah, look, Kira. I think between Brexit, which has been a catastrophe, I mean, the, the money draining out of this country every single day now, on top of that, the cost of the pandemic, you've got a government that many people really feel has run its course and we need to move on from. Yeah, it's in a very, very difficult situation right now. I think tomorrow will be a key day, actually, for Boris Johnson. Two by-election results coming in, one up in Yorkshire, one down in Devon. Um, they're both potentially going to go the wrong way for the Conservatives. And I think there'll be a big discussion in the coming weeks about the future of Boris Johnson and this government. But you're right, there's just simply okay. no cash available and it's a difficult situation. All right, we have to leave it there. My thanks to uh, Ender Brady. The rest of the panel will be staying with me to discuss why Ireland is now the most expensive country in the EU for everyday costs. Very welcome back. Now, a report released by the European Commission's data analysis wing Eurostat this week revealed that prices in both Ireland and Denmark were 40% higher than the EU average in 2021. Well, my panel is still here to discuss this, and I'm also joined by CEO of the Restaurants Association of Ireland, Adrian Cummins. Adrian, you're very welcome to the programme. But Adrian, I want to start with you. It's very difficult, isn't it, to get a measure of the cost of living in a country, but Looking at this particular research, what exactly did they examine and why did Ireland end up where it did? Well, it took a typical basket of goods and services and measured the price differences relative over time, but also adjusted for local purchasing power. So it's not, I would not call it an official cost of living index. We can have a big debate about what would a cost of living index looks like. The CSO and Eurostat is actually committed to officially producing one, but they haven't. But what's important here is that... 
Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. The cost is adjusted for people's purchasing power. Now, that's complex. And I think largely that's why Ireland jumped so high up the list. Ireland is joint top with Denmark. But if you break that down, I'm pretty sure by city, and the research I've done in the past would suggest that Dublin is the most expensive city in the European Union. You can move to any other city in the EU and your cost of living will drop, particularly if you're in the private rental sector and if you have kids in creche. So childcare, housing are huge factors in driving up. More recently, what has pushed up the cost of living measured in terms of prices Again, we could debate what that exactly means, is food, accommodation, uh, things like that, imported food, food in particular, and energy obviously is a massive one there. So put energy, food together on top of already a very high cost of living when it comes to childcare housing, recognise that it's a very divided society in terms of the local purchasing power of people. And I think that's what really makes Ireland stand out different to Denmark, Switzerland, places like this, whereby typically these are very high wage economies. Ireland has a high wage economy, but the vast majority of people are not in that. Has it always been like this? It's been like this, I think. It's, 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 it's a double-edged sword of the Irish growth model. We have this very successful foreign direct investment multinational sector, which are basically trading in the most competitive sectors of the global economy, the most profitable sectors of the global economy. They employ people, of course, and there's a knock-on effect. The government collects of revenue. 20% of taxes comes from that sector. But ultimately, yeah, it means that it pushes up prices domestically and locally, particularly in cities for everybody else who's just not even remotely close to those wages. That's not a critique of anybody who works in that sector. It's not a critique necessarily of the model. Uh, but it does come with a consequence, and you see it very clearly in terms of differential cost of living. And do we have any understanding? Because I'm just looking at some of the stats here. 88% higher for utility bills like electricity and gas, 105% higher for alcohol, 17.5% higher than the EU average for food. Mm-hmm. 
away any justification? Well, for, there's obviously measures around being an island, right? So therefore, it costs more to import certain things. Food transport costs go up. If energy costs go up, so you can expect imported food to go up. You can expect energy costs to go up. Uh, and of course, everybody knows alcohol is extremely expensive in this country because of the, the VAT and same with tobacco and so forth. But these are choices government have made. There's arguably behavioural good reasons for it, taxing things you don't want people to do and so on. But ultimately, I think... These are not particularly new stories, right? And I don't, and I think as mentioned earlier on, I don't think anybody living in Dublin and our cities who finds out that Dublin and Ireland is the most expensive city and country in the EU alongside Denmark is going to be that surprised. Uh, and well, I think the debate for me really has to be focused on the wage issue. Why are people's wages not increasing to match the increased cost of living? And why have they not done so over the past? And why do we have such a divided market income in this uh, in the labour market itself? Okay. And of course, that includes smaller businesses as well who are disproportionately affected by this. And um, there was another stat out today, Andrea. Hotel uh, price bulletin from STR Global. Dublin is the most expensive city for the first time ever above even Zurich. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just not very positive news, is it, really? No. And, and funny, Kira, that's what we've been talking about. Two people, two just customers, listeners to, to the show in recent weeks, like the, the number of people who will call in to talk about issues over car rental and trying to hire cars uh, in this country. Like you're talking about the guts of three and four thousand euro people are being quoted for your like bog standard average car during the summer period over maybe a seven to ten day period. I, I had another uh, listener in the show earlier this week talking about a, a weekend, average weekend in July, a uh, typical hotel, not a five star hotel, typical hotel in Dublin, anywhere in the guts of about seven to nine hundred euro. Like, as an image that we're sending out to other um, European visitors and Lonely Planet, the Travel Bible Guide, have actually issued a warning to people considering coming to Ireland about eight different reasons, you know, to take into account before you dare come near the capital city of the country over just the sheer cost of holiday in here. Yeah, and Adrian, um, that Eurostat figure, they said the biggest difference between us and other European countries um, was when it came to restaurants cost of restaurants here and the cost of hotels. Well, we're What's the reason? Well, the reason being that, you know, the cost of running a business is, is, uh, is huge within Ireland. We're a high-tax economy. Uh, and we also have, you know, our industry has only reopened after 22 weeks. Uh, you know, we were shut down for nearly two years and we're trying to get back back to a position where we have viable businesses. We were supported by the government. We're very thankful for all the government support yeah, that in, we did. In but fairness, just sir, Adrian, to cut across no. you there, I mean, there was shut down across most of Europe when it came to the hospitality industry, perhaps not to the same extent as Ireland, but still quite significant. So I don't know if that's well, a fair justification. It doesn't matter whether it's hospitality or other businesses. The cost of running a business in Ireland is extremely high. Yeah, we're, we're a high-wage society. We're very labour-intensive in hospitality. You know, our average uh, percentage of running, uh, run, the running cost for, of, a, of, of a restaurant or hospitality is nearly 36 37% of turnover. It's not the same for other factories. There's a lot less, it's a, it's a, lower, a lower percentage on, 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 on cost wages. Okay, so we are a high cost. But the number of staff needed to run a restaurant in Dublin is exactly the same as the number of staff needed yeah, to run but, a restaurant but, in Zurich. But the cost of energy is, is, is higher in Ireland. The yeah. cost of food inputs has gone increased. Cost of chicken has gone up by 64%. Cost of, of cooking oil got up by 120%. These are all input costs that we have seen over the last six months because yeah, of the war in Ukraine. Yeah, but that Eurostat figure that we were talking about, that's from 2021. Well, that's what prior I, what I, what I can see at up. the moment, and very clearly from businesses that, that we represent, is that they've seen a massive increase in the cost of running their business. And we have 
provided, uh, and, we, and you will see from data at the moment, we have increased wages in our industry. That's a fact. Nearly 80% of all businesses in hospitality has increased their wages substantially to retain staff and keep staff within our industry. We also have lost 40,000 staff due to, due, because of the COVID pandemic. 20,000 have left Ireland, haven't returned, and 20,000 have gone to other sectors. And didn't come back to the industry. Didn't come back to the industry because it went to other sectors. And we have, to, we have a job of work now to try and replenish mm. that, that, that level of staff that we had within our industry. Um, Nell Collins, given the fact that the government has created this sort of 9% VAT rate for the hospitality industry, and I know there's a lot of other elements, this is your staff report I want to get to, but let's just focus on the hospitality at the moment. Do you think the fact that we are now as expensive as Denmark, the highest in Europe, is acceptable? I don't. And I think um, in the hospitality sector, I think you have to split it. The, the restaurants, in my view, are different to the hotels. The, okay, they both benefit from the same VAT rate reduction. And um, the hotels in particular, in my view, are engaged in blatant price gouging. Disgraceful. The way they, you know, the hotel sector was really, really well supported, as was the, the restaurant sector. The restaurant sector don't bump up their menus the All-Ireland Bank Holiday, the All-Ireland Weekend or a Bank Holiday Weekend, the prices on their menus, the hotels will. And what the hotels are engaged in, I think, is just such a rip-off culture. It's disgraceful. The 9%, the, the reduction in VAT... They say now they're, they're not here, obviously, to defend themselves. They say, look, we're trying to recoup the losses, the huge no, no, losses no, well, we had well, over the well, pandemic. I, and I, look, it's a supply you, and a demand issue, basically. The, the reduction in VAT, VAT isn't a cost to a business. VAT is a consumer tax, which the business collects as an agent of the state and hands over to the state. The VAT reduction was to be passed on to the consumer. It's not being passed on by the hotels. That's one. Secondly, they're gouging, they're putting up their prices, so they're gouging everybody. So they're, they're taking it on the double. So why doesn't the so government I, I reverse think for, that for, for me, I think there's an argument to separate out the, the restaurant sector and the, the other parts of the hospitality sector from the hotels in terms of the VAT rate. And, and really, I think it's hugely, hugely disappointing. Um, the Oireachtas um, Tourism uh, committee had hearings on it recently and, and you know the sector didn't give a good account of themselves and it's damaging. So you, would, it's would damaging they, will the, will the government look reputation. at reversing that 9% tax rate then if some if these prices don't change? Well it hasn't been passed on to the consumer. It said a VAT reduction you know it is supposed to be an incentive to the consumer to spend money and it has not been passed on so that's that's the basic yes, principle. Yes but, the, but so, currently the VAT remains the same. Yeah so look that'll be a decision of government um, when it comes to budget and I can't preempt that but uh, I, I'm just you know, I'm, I'm just outlining to you how it's not working in my personal view. And I think um, really it's doing reputational damage to the country also. The cost of an overnight in Dublin or, okay. or the cost of a number of overnights in Dublin is just now completely prohibitive. Okay. And, and it's damaging our international reputation and, and it's, it's going to be the law of diminishing returns ultimately. Yeah, I just want Len to look at all the other uh, costs in Ireland because yeah. it is a high cost of living society. Yeah. We were talking there about electricity and gas, 88% higher than what you'd find in many other European countries. Alcohol, 105% higher. Yeah. Food, 17% higher. Why is this? Yeah, what is so your the, understanding? So the, so the, so the, the Eurostat report that, that, that we're talking about, like alcohol and tobacco, have, are high, they have a high tax uh, component in their prices. Um, you know, and it's hard to argue against um, high taxes on those. You know, you have to look at food. We're, we're a food producing nation. We produce premium quality food. Mm -hmm. Food which is grown in this country by our farmers up and down the country is to, the, is to a really, really high standard. And when we're importing... There's costs of importing now. The logistics of importing uh, has gone way up and are, we're an energy price taker. And government, as you know, you've heard it on this show, night in, night out, we've done 2.4 billion uh, since the last budget in terms of trying to help people and target measures to help people, fat reductions, excise reductions, increases in the fuel allowance, um, reductions in the PSO. Okay, but ultimately... You know, I mean, like, 
you, why the, the, I suppose the question is, is rip-off Ireland back? Why is it so expensive here? Well, Ireland, I still don't look, have I mean, Ireland is a high-cost economy. Uh, we, we know that because we're an island economy. We're also a high, we're, we're, we're a higher wage uh, economy also. So it's, as Aidan has pointed out, you know, it's a, du- it's a double-edged sword. But, it's, but as far as government is concerned, we have to concern ourselves with buffering people against the inflation that we're experiencing at the moment. In a second. Um, Gina, we're a high-cost uh, yeah. economy, but we're a high-wage economy. Yeah. I mean, Ireland is a very, it's a very expensive country. And when you include inflation, wh- where it's going now at the moment, uh, it will create the perfect storm. I mean, you, know, you just look at the kind of the stables of people's lives in relation to rent, food, childcare, energy prices. Um, I mean, people are spending up to 40% on rent income out of their wages. Now, that can only kind of, you know, you can only sustain that for so long. Um, And put in inflation, which is running now, as I said, uh, over 7%, uh, people will be pinned to the collar. And then there's a whole section of people that are kind of in the low wage, uh, low kind of uh, wage economy uh, and social welfare. So so what do you suggest? Then there needs to be targeted measures in relation to the next budget, in relation to those that are especially kind of energy poverty, because the peak and the vortex of this inflationary kind of crisis will come in the winter when people will not be able to heat their home. They'll have to choose between heating the home or, um, you know, or food. And you just can't have that. You just can't have that in society. Okay, just very briefly, I just want to go back to you, um, Adrian, about the 9% of the, the VAT rate. Just something that Niall mentioned. You know, the government are looking here. If we don't see a change here in prices, it sounds like it could be taken off the table. Well, we're, our pre-budget submission will be ready in the next uh, couple of days to submit to government. We're advocating for the 9% for restaurants. Obviously, there is other sectors that is beneficial from, has benefited from the 9%. Hairdressers, cinemas concerts, festivals, and also hotels as well. So the government can make a decision here. They can move move all of us up or move some of us up to 13.5%. We're going to advocate that restaurants are kept at 9%. So, so treat the restaurants and the hotels well, different ways, what you're saying. I'm very clear here. We're going to fight our own corner in this for the, for, for the restaurant sector. That's our that's, That will be in our pre-budget submission will be submitted into government. Okay, I just want to ask you very quickly, uh, Niall, because we're running out of time here. Really mixed messages coming uh, from government this week. Uh, we had the Taoiseach saying repeatedly, no more measures until budget day. Mm-hmm. Then we have Leo Radker coming out this week and saying, hmm, we'll see. Maybe if things get really bad with fuel, we might have to look at messages. Is that helpful coming from Leo Radker? Yeah, but look, I think the overriding message, which... Um, government has been giving. I, I know what you're pointing out. Oh, they were mixed put, put, put this week. Nine, nine. Well, look, I mean, I, I reinforce the, the one government message which I think needs to go out. The Fine Foyle side of the government or the Fine Gael side of the government? <laughs> look, anyway, there'll be, there'll be a comprehensive package in the budget. The budget will be in early October and it will be particularly uh, targeted at people who are vulnerable, lower middle income people who need assistance in the inflationary spiral that we're in at the moment and I think that's really really important that we get that okay, message out in October. there people. Uh, yeah. Just very uh, very quickly um, Bonkers.ie had suggested that we you know we need a Minister for Consumer Affairs in this country to look at the at the high uh, cost of living. Do you think that would have any impact Aidan? Would that work? I don't know to be honest. I mean in an ideal world you'd have a national incomes and prices policy and you'd coordinate wages, income and prices downwards in response to monetary policy but we don't live in that world. 
market set prices now, but you have a lot of price gouging. And it's important to point that out. There's a lot of corporate profiteering taking place in certain sectors of the economy. You know, businesses can increase profits by basically cutting wages or increasing prices beyond markup. And of course, there's a lot of the latter going on at the moment in certain parts of the economy. So we should be aware of that too. And be calling it out. And be calling it out. So if that's part of a kind of a national... But ultimately, the focus for me has to be on the cost of living. And it's not that's not just about prices. That's about the cost of healthcare. It's about the cost of housing, the cost of childcare. So if you have a kind of social wage right. relationship, you can start to tackle some of those issues. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. But my thanks to Aidan Regan, Nell Collins, Gino Kenny and Adrian Cummings. Andrea is going to be staying with us for a look at some of the other big news stories of the week. Lots more after this break. Welcome back. Now, Andrea Gilligan is still here and joining her for a look at some of the other big news stories is Sunday Independent uh, journalist uh, Donald Lynch. I know you were looking at your phone there for breaking news, <laughs> Donald. I know you were doing your research, so no uh, judgments. Sure <laughs> uh, let's just uh, start with the Leaving Cert uh, results. Yeah. So this students, the class of 2022, have now been given a date, September 2nd, mm-hmm. about two weeks later, then, you know, when students would hope to get the results. Mm. What impact is that going to have on these first year students? Well, I think it's very tough. It's like, it seems like yet another way in which we're kind of screwing over young people through COVID. I mean, they're going to have to wait to find out when they can book accommodation, mm. the courses themselves. There's just so many logistics to, to, to get an order. And it just seems like yet another kind of way in which they're kind of drawing the short end of the, of the straw. Mm. And... Um, yeah, I, my heart goes out to them. I think, you know, even just the extra weeks of waiting as well, um, I think you just want to kind of rip the Band-Aid off and get it over and done with when you're in that situation yourself. And we can all remember just the, the tension of that morning and everything and that that's drawn out now a little bit further even for them. I think yeah. it's really tough. And Andrea, look, the governments today were speaking, they said, look, these are the reasons we've given people, uh, you know, a chance to reset uh, exams. Uh, We also have to look at the results and compare them to last year's to ensure the grades are inflated properly. And uh, there was a third reason, which was we don't have enough people to mark the papers. Yeah, challenges around the correctors. As Norma Foley, the education minister, said earlier today, has, you know, proven to be one of the, the, the challenges in all of this. Just to pick up on Ben's point, like, you know, that was something we talked about earlier this week, actually, in the show. I think the accommodation thing is going to be a massive, massive problem. It's always a big problem for, you know, the college students, particularly for the first year students, because of the, the short period that they have from when they get those results, get the, um, their, their, their choice in the college, find out where that is when the offers come out, and then you try the, the hunt for the accommodation. Like now more than ever, when you look at the the lack of supply, uh, the fact that in particularly big areas like Dublin and Cork, like you're going to have first year college students who have a tight, narrow budget to find college accommodation competing with major multinational employees. Mm-hmm. And everybody's in the hunt for the very small pool of rental accommodation that, that's actually there. And like even already this week here, we were talking to um, to students, Leave Insert students, first year students heading back for second year parents on the programme about, like, this is a concern already for people, even at this oh, I would say early, it's a major early stage. Yeah. You know, and, Particularly and think, if you're, you know, you, you can't commute to your 
uh, college. You can't stay at home with your parents, you know, if you're stuck. Mm. If you were coming from, as we probably came from Donegal yeah. up to Dublin, you had no choice but to find accommodation. And what you needed was more time, mm. Donald, to find that, not less. Mm. You know, I know it's only two weeks delay, but it's it's significant when you look at the window that they do have, these students. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just brutal. I mean, I, I saw a news item there where, where students were looking for um, accommodation in Galway. And I mean, they can't afford it. It, it just sort of, it's obviously a national crisis it's bigger than just than just the students but it's it's completely brutal at the moment. Yeah, and it'll come to a head, I think, in September. Uh, let's look at the census uh, figures today. Population in Ireland now over 5 million. You have to go back to pre-famine times to see those kind of numbers. Yeah, I don't know. That's kind of frightening to me, that, that, that those, those numbers that it's going up and up. It kind of ties into the previous topic. Where are they all going to fit? Where are, we going to, where are they going to live? How are we going to fit them, fit them all in? Um, I suppose to take a positive from it, you know, if you looked at like the... We heard for so long about that rural Ireland was was dying and that that um, population was hemorrhaging from those areas. They've all gone up as well. And even counties that are relatively sparsely populated within Ireland, like Donegal, increased by fairly large margins, much greater than the European average. So in a sense, that's one positive aspect out of it all. But it does raise concerns of what kind of investment is going to happen for all the different services, health, education, housing above all. Um, and are, are they forward planning um, enough for, 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 for what's coming down the line? Yeah, because it was quite a big increase, 7.6% in the last uh, six years, Andrea, yeah, or five ab- years rather. Absolutely. And, and hardly surprising that the, um, the highest population growth were in the counties in and around the Leinster region. But on your point around the fact that like, I suppose maybe the pandemic and the last 18 months to two years has given people the opportunity to to relocate, to move. And, and that has, you know, borne out in these um, CSO figures. The fact that we're seeing today that like nearly every county in the country has, we've a much greater, I think, disparity now in terms of not everybody is just centrally based within the big cities. Um, and that, I think, can only be a good thing and in particular that a good a positive thing, thing. Yeah, absolutely, for rural Ireland. Uh, I just want to move on, sorry, Andrea, because I know it's a story that you covered um, this week and we didn't get a chance to it. Car theft in this country. Uh, the number of cars being stolen at a seven-year high. Gardaí issued a warning over it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and not only did they issue the warning, but in particular to people who were driving Japanese imports. Um, the story about this, I think, is, is the fact that to, to do with the number of cars that are being imported, uh, Japanese models, and there's about 90% of those particular types of cars are all fitted with immobilizers, the immobilizer alarm. But there is a percentage, about 10% coming in that don't have it. And that's proven to be the problem. So apparently... Thieves, and they're being targeted. They're being targeted. So the thieves are, are, are out, you know, looking at the cars, checking the cars, searching the cars, figuring out which ones don't have the immobilizer model. They have this signal blocking, you know, sort of a mechanism that they can use through your front door with the keys and the fobs. But look, ultimately, the warning from anybody in the mechanic business and this week when we were talking about it in the show is very simply, if you're driving a Japanese import car, you need to bring it to wherever you bought it, go to the dealer, ask them to check, has this thing got an immobilizer and a alarm on it and if it doesn't have it get it seemingly they're not all that expensive to put on the car and well worth it in failing that the guards in Cork who actually issued this warning this week here simply said go out and get I don't know the official mechanical name for it but uh, the yellow thing you put through your steering wheel that's <laughs> nearly so like the a lock, sort the of big lock thing. Get big heavy looking put lock put it through the steering wheel and that will uh, hopefully um, act as a deterrent your car. but it is incredible at a, at a seven year high but I suppose it just shows you how crafty and uh, moving with the, thi- the times thieves are that they're uh, they're very specifically focusing on a particular type of models. All right, um, Pride, um, the big Pride uh, parade's on this weekend. Uh, Donald, why is it still important? 
It's still important because if a parent probably finds out that their child is gay, they still have that hesitancy and they still have that maybe that fear for that child as to what they're facing out there in the world. And the kid takes that on and that's, that's an issue in, in, in ordinary families. You know, it's easy to kind of look at a celebrity who's an adult and they have all that power and they have all that influence and they're confident enough to, to be who they are. But there's, there's people who are not in front of cameras and they're the people who, who you would hope pride reaches out to and that's why it's still important. Yeah, I mean, there was two really high profile um, um, sports stars coming out mm. uh, this week, Andrea. Yeah, absolutely, in, in, in Kelly Holmes. Um, <laughs> It's just over the weekend, I think, wasn't it, that, that Kelly came out? And also Leinster's um, Nick McCarthy, um, too. And, and I think, you know, and rightly so, there's been a lot of, um, I suppose, just, you know, support and, and very much so within the public eye and the public arena around this, um, just given the fact that we've had so much discussion um, around LGBTQI plus rights in recent weeks. Um, and I think and so that many high-profile uh, homophobic motivated absolutely, attacks absolutely, in Dublin that have happened in the last yeah, few months. And that, I think, is you know, part of the reason that a lot of, particularly those people within the sports industry and sports actors have come out and said, you know, this doesn't happen okay. particularly um, from a lot of high-profile sports players, uh, particularly in Ireland as well. And, and that's something I think is part of the reason that it's being commended. All right, Andrea Gilligan and Donald Lynch, thank you both for coming in this Thanks. evening. That's it from us. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. And you can also now find us on Instagram tonight, VMTV. But from all the late team here, good night and do take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.